When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50% to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hi, this is Hold Your Fire, a podcast by the International Crisis Group. I'm Richard Atwood. I am out this week, so we didn't record an episode, and we thought instead to post an episode from another of Crisis Group's podcasts, The Horn. If you haven't checked out The Horn, you should. It's a fortnightly, in-depth look at Horn of Africa politics. We're posting an episode from last November. It's called Eritrea's Long Bitter Feud with Ethiopia's Tigray. And as we talked about on the show last week, there's some good news from Ethiopia after the peace deal signed by Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed's government and Tigrayan leaders late last year. But arguably the big challenge is whether Eritrean President Isaias Afwerki, whose troops have been fighting alongside federal forces against the Tigrayans, will pull out his army and how that's sequenced with Tigrayans disarming. Although this episode is a few weeks old, it preceded the peace deal. It gives all the background as to why that's such a thorny question. So hopefully we'll be back for a regular Hold Your Fire episode next week. And in the meantime, I hope you find this useful. Hi, and welcome to The Horn, a podcast from the International Crisis Group. I'm Alan Boswell. Today, I'm delighted to have Michael Woldemeriam join us again. Michael is an associate professor at the School of Public Policy at the University of Maryland, and we've invited him on the show to do a deep dive into why Eritrea is waging war inside Ethiopia's Tigray region. Uh, this episode was really informative for me, and we think you'll find it so as well. Mike, welcome back to the podcast. Happy to be here. So I, I brought you on um, because I think our listeners would really appreciate, I would really appreciate a sort of deep dive looking back at where this current enmity between the Eritrean leadership and the Tigrayan leadership, where that really started and kind of unpacking that. Um, first, though, let's start with current dynamics. What do we know about the exact scale of the Eritrean role in this current joint offensive that's going on in Tigray right now in Ethiopia? Yeah, it's a, it's a good question, Alan. And it, in some ways, it's it's hard to say because the Ethiopian government itself is quite quiet on that issue. Um, the Eritrean government generally doesn't say much about security, military affairs. We are um, getting assessments, of course, from the Tigrayan side and from some in the international community. But it does appear overall, um, I think we can say with some confidence that the Eritrean military is um, heavily engaged in the current uh, offensive. It's a joint offensive uh, between Ethiopian forces and, uh, and the Eritrean military. And it appears that they've deployed a number of mechanized units um, and some infantry as well. Although from what I hear, most of the infantry uh, fighting on the coalition side are Ethiopian infantry, so ENDF and, and Amhara forces. But, uh, but to underscore the point, yes, I think uh, Eritrea's involvement is, is quite clear and, and quite robust. Does it look like they've sort of thrown their full military weight into this conflict? 
That, again, I think is hard to say. They've thrown significant resources into the war effort. Whether they've thrown their full military weight is, I would say, unclear. They've got a number of divisions deployed, but I think it's quite possible that many others are also being kept in reserve. Okay, so I, I want you to, you know, help take us back as far back as we need to go to help understand this part of the conflict. Of course, you, you have the overall civil war in Ethiopia, but I think in some ways the, the Eritrea and Tigray dynamic is not separate from those, but is almost like a conflict in of itself, and it's and it's less talked about. Um, so, so how far back do you think we, we need to go? Tell us, you know, about what are very strong cultural and linguistic links between the Tigrayans and, of course, the Eritreans on the opposite side. Great. So I think where we probably need to go back to is, is the 1970s. Um, so when we talk about Eritrea-Tigray relations as they exist today, we're really talking about the dynamics and relation, relationship between two movements, the Tigray People's Liberation Front and the Eritrean People's Liberation Front, now uh, effectively the ruling party of Eritrea called the People's Front for Democracy and Justice. These are two movements that uh, came about in the 1970s. EPLF is slightly uh, older uh, organization than the TPLF, um, but they fought in, in unison against uh, the Derg uh, Marxist uh, regime that ruled Ethiopia at that time. I, I would say what's notable about the EPLF and TPLF in terms of uh, comparisons is really how much they actually share um, in terms of their sort of ideological commitments, which at that time were mostly Marxist-Leninist. You know, these were uh, armed movements, uh, sort of had these ideas of kind of Maoist rebellion. In terms of their social composition, quite similar. A lot of the leadership hailed from post, you know, Ethiopia's post-secondary institutions. You know, and, and in terms of kind of sort of ethno-linguistic background, I mean, the EPLF is a, was and and the PFDJ is today a, a sort of um, multi-ethnic, multi-religious movement. But in both the TPLF and EPLF, you know, Tigrinya-speaking uh, Orthodox, primarily Orthodox Christians. So so these movements, uh, I think, do share a lot. I also say the EPLF played a, a fairly important role in the TPLF's early emergence. So the, the, the EPLF is a splinter movement from an older Eritrean front called the Eritrean Liberation Front. So it, it, the EPLF emerges in about, splits, splits off in about 1972, 1973. The TPLF emerges in about 1975, 1976, and, and the EPLF provides some early support. And so from that point on, they are collaborating against the rulers of Ethiopia and fighting this, this armed insurgency. Um, in the mid-1980s, the two movements go through a rocky patch and there were a number of differences over military strategy, some ideological differences really around uh, the role of political ethnicity and exactly what self-determination uh, meant. Um, but they, in the late 1980s, they were able to come back together uh, once again. And a lot of that had to do with changing military circumstances on the ground. So the Marxist regime, the Derg, begins to wobble militarily in the, in the late 1980s. And that creates momentum for the TPLF and EPLF to rekindle their alliance. And they ultimately prevail in, in defeating the Derg by 1991 and essentially implant themselves as the ruling elite in Ethiopia, in the case of the TPLF, uh, under the aegis of the EPRDF, the Ethiopian People's Revolutionary Democratic Front, and the EPLF becomes a ruling party of a soon-to-be independent Eritrea. Eritrea becomes an independent state formally in 1993. So that's essentially uh, the backdrop, Alan. Um, and, and I think we could get into what happens in the post-Cold War era. But effectively, the alliance that the two movements had as armed groups uh, persists as um, the TPLF and EPLF are, are then now running different states after 1991. Um, and that relationship um, is an okay one. There were tensions, uh, but it ultimately, again, falls apart in 1998 for a variety of issues, the biggest being uh, differences over economic relations and also territorial dispute. And it is the, the 1998 war that I think puts the two movements and the two countries they were leading on on a, a sort of path of mutual enmity that's really critical to understanding the current conflict. Great. Thanks, Mike. You just walked us through a, a lot of history there. We'll 
get back to the border war, the 1998 uh, border war in a second, to go back to some of that deeper history first. Now, obviously, the the two movements at the time were both insurgent movements in what was then uh, still an Ethiopian state. Um, and obviously, they, they had different objectives. The EPLF was seeking independence for Eritrea. What was the TPLF fighting for back then? It's a good question. And there is a, a bit of a sort of uh, again, ambiguity around this particular question. I mean, I think broadly, like the Eritrean side, they were interested in in self-determination. But what exactly that meant, I think, again, um, was precisely the question. Um, You know, I I think at certain moments, they gestured, I think, towards um, full independence. But I think as as time moves on, um, they begin to consolidate around the idea of, particularly once you get to the 1980s, consolidate around the idea of remaining um, within an Ethiopian state um, that would then guarantee uh, their autonomy within within the framework of United Ethiopia. There is uh, some controversy and, again, debate around this particular issue. Certainly one aspect of the, of the Eritrean government's sort of narrative around what the TPLF wants, and now we're sort of getting into the weeds here, is, is that actually what the TPLF wanted and wants is a kind of um, a sort of pan-Tigrinia speaking state, a sort of greater Tigray, that would involve incorporating segments of the Eritrean highlands into a, a united Tigray. That's certainly part of the, the Eritrean narrative, but I'm, I'm not really quite sure how much currency that idea um, had uh, amongst the Tigrayans politically, particularly once you get into the to the 1980s. And so in some ways, you, you have another case also picking on a broader point here where a colonial border has, you know, very awkwardly split a ethno-linguistic group, and, and that's still playing out now yeah, and it's and I'll just say, Alan, it's a good point insofar as telling the story of Eritrea-Tigray relations in part requires us uh, to go back to the Italian colonial period, right, and the administrative boundaries that were set up at that time. Of course, Eritrea's modern identity owes itself to, you know, to the Italian colonial period, although I think there are some pre-colonial political formations that map onto uh, contemporary Eritrea. As always seems to be the case, we can always go back further. Okay, can we zero in on this sort of rough spot that you said the EPLF and the TPLF faced, in which, you know, essentially the EPLF, perhaps in a foreshadowing a bit of of today, you know, helped blockade the Tigrayans, um, including trying to block their access to food. Can you just talk about what what caused that and then, you know, how they managed to patch things up? Yeah, so the the mid 1980s, I think there were there were a number. Listen again, so much of this uh, of of the the tensions between Eritrean Tigrayan elites is, is shrouded in ambiguity, polarized narratives. Um, but but there were a number of of ideological and military strategic issues that I think divided uh, the movements. One was sort on the military strategic side. I think one question was whether. Um, these movements, those joint forces should be fighting kind of fixed positional warfare um, or whether they should move to kind of more kind of mobile um, sort of guerrilla warfare. So the, the EPLF for really the entirety of, it, uh, entirety of its history had a fixed base area in northwestern Eritrea uh, called uh, called Nakfa. That's, an, that's a the base area that never uh, fell. Um, it came close during Ethiopia's Red Star offensive in 1982, but but never fell. And so, you know, I think p- part of the issue, part of the tension was, well, um, should we really be fighting that sort of fixed positional warfare? Are the cost too high? Would we not be better off uh, fighting a, a more mobile fight where there are no f- no fixed positions that that we're defending? And I think the 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 TPLF and Tigray it, it adhered more to that sort of latter latter strategy. Um, and then I think part of the ideological question was really around around the issue of political ethnicity. And I think there are probably two issues here. One is, is really whether, you know, Tigray, um, you know, really should take self-determination to its limits and one day be an independent state. But the other issue was really, you know, I think the, the Tigrayan side really advocated for, uh, again, this is murky, this idea of self-determination for all nations and nationalities. And because Eritrea is a multinational entity, um, on the Eritrean side, that was perceived as, as damaging the sort of unity of Eritrea. And if you say uh, self-determination for all nations and nationalities, that, that could presumably mean ethnic groups within Eritrea separating uh, from Eritrea, right? And so, so those were, were some of the things, I think, uh, that came up. Just to also add, this is the case later on. I mean, a lot of times we focus on the details of ideological and strategic disputes, but I think fundamentally a lot of this was about power, 
uh, an authority and sort of who would actually be or should be this sort of top dog or main player in this alliance, in this relationship. That's really the subtext of, of all that's been going on here. Who was the stronger force back then? Well, I, I want to be careful here, but I think I think it's fair to say that uh, for much of the war against the Derg, uh, the EPLF was the senior player. Uh, first of all, it was the older it was the older military and political front. They play a a role in the um, in the early kind of development of the TPLF through providing them some armaments and some training. I mean, it wasn't over it wasn't an overwhelming amount of support, but I think it was significant early catalyst uh, for the movement. As you then go on through the late 1970s and 1980s, the main theater of war in northern, at that time, what was northern Ethiopia was was Eritrea, was in Eritrea. That's where many of the big battles were fought. That's where the Derg waged many of its big offensives. That's not to diminish, of course, the role of the TPLF. I mean, it was a it was a significant player. Uh, they rendered wide swaths of Tigray ungovernable uh, from the Derg's perspective. Um, and they grow by leaps and bounds in the late 1980s to the point where um, by the end of the war, they're a very formidable mil- military front. Um, doesn't quite have the mechanized capabilities of the EPLF, but has a lot of fighters under arms. Um, and so when you think about the eventual outcome of that war and the defeat of the Derg, I, I think it's fair to say it was a joint, it was a joint effort. Yes, uh, the EPLF was, I think, the, the stronger senior partner, um, but, um, but the dirt might not have fell at the end of the day or as, as quickly as it ended up falling uh, without this sort of joint effort. Hmm. J- just to go back to that rough patch in the 1980s because of its sort of ominous echoes with today, how exactly did the EPLF blockade and use food as a weapon uh, against the TPLF during this period and, and, and why? Yeah, sorry. And I, I, I think I glossed over, over that issue. I think once diplomatic relation or political relations, the alliance is broken between the TPLF and EPLF, the EPLF, and this comes up in, in the historiography of the TPLF primarily, the EPLF essentially blocks uh, the TPLF's movement and sort of corridor from Tigray um, through Western Eritrea into Sudan. You know, from the Tigrayan perspective, that was highly problematic because by the mid-1980s, you have a pretty serious famine um, underway in Tigray and parts of Eritrea. And so what the Tigrayans end up doing is basically creating their own land corridor from uh, Tigray. The borders of Tigray were different back then through other regions of Ethiopia, then um, into into Sudan. So that's sort of their their answer to that problem. This is one part of, of history that is invoked on the Tigrayan side as sort of their narrative, the heirs of the Eritrean leadership, their perfidy. I mean, this is this is part of the sort of historical story that is told uh, on the Tigrayan side. Is this also a bit of the genesis of Western Tigray being as strategically important, perhaps, to the Tigrayans coming up to the present day? This need for this uh, route through Sudan? Yeah, I mean, I think that is that's a relevant part of the calculus. I mean, of course, the Tigrayan political elites would make the argument that they that their claims to Western Tigray are legitimate, are anchored in history. But one has to think that there is a strategic element uh, to this as well, uh, particularly in the context of of the current conflict, where Tigray region is essentially surrounded from all sides. So, access to the Sudan Sudanese border is is important in humanitarian terms, but I would also imagine military strategic terms as well. Right. You can tell from the Eritrean deployment throughout this war that they also seem to understand that. I think the Eritrean perspective or the perspective of the Eritrean leadership, rather, and and Isaias, President Isaias, is the TPLF must be prevented from deploying its forces into Western Tigray and uh, reacquiring control of it. Mm. Isaias received military and I think ideological training in China. How did how did that influence, you think, him personally or, or the EPLF? Um, I mean, I think it, it probably affected um, his leadership style and the EPLF more generally in a number of ways. I mean, there is the sort of Marxist-Leninist, Maoist ideological commitments, the sort of mode of popular guerrilla warfare that they ended up waging. It's also the way in which he sort of managed uh, his rivals, right? So they're purged his rivals at, at, at regular intervals when he felt appropriate um, and, and marshaled some sort of popular support within the ranks uh, to, to cleanse the, the movement of his rivals. So I think it's also the case, this is not this is not as well documented, but I think there's an element of truth to it. There was some very modest, minimal support 
um, that, the, that the Chinese Communist Party, the Chinese government provided uh, to the EPLF and some other armed movements uh, within Ethiopia in the, in the 1970s and 1980s. But again, that, I think that was very modest, very marginal. Interesting, because I just think Isaias is always interesting as a political figure, you know, in this region, because he he's sort of alone, maybe not completely alone, but doesn't feel the need to sort of give mouth service to um, a lot of Western liberal sort of points. I, I mean, I think that's fair to say. I mean, he's not someone, um, and this is particularly after the, the country's very pronounced authoritarian turn after 2001 um, and, the, and the, the Ethiopian Eritrean border war. And those, those two things are linked, I think, in important ways. But, but certainly after that, um, his government really chose not to engage in any any kind of real democratic pretense, right? And I think there are, in that sense, there are echoes of of not just Maoism but but Stalinism and even Marxist a Marxist Leninist line more generally. Did the TPLF essentially have no choice but to let Eritrea secede, um, given the military and political state of play after the Derg was toppled? I don't think there was a, a great deal of choice, um, I think, in, in that decision. I mean, first of all, the EPLF controlled um, all of Eritrea's landmass. Um, and it's also the case that given the, the partnership between uh, the two movements, um, the EPLF was playing a fairly significant role in the TPLF's consolidation of control of Ethiopia more broadly in this, in this post-Derg moment. Right? Um, that's not to suggest that the TPLF didn't have its own capabilities. I mean, it was outside of Eritrea, it was the strongest um, of, of the liberation fronts in, in Ethiopia, right? You know, but I think the, the sort of p- uh, political military realities were that they, they sort of had to, um, had to accept the reality of, of Eritrean independence. Um, the only other thing I'll mention here, though, is that, I mean, I also think the TPLF was fairly, at least at, at, at the top level and, and looking at Melis, I mean, fairly, they ideologically supported and committed were committed to Eritrean independence, right? I mean, I don't think there was a groundswell within the movement that opposed uh, Eritrean independence, if, if we're being fair, right? So it was a combination of, of, of sort of hard political realities. And I think also sort of the TPLF's own, at least at that time, its own sort of ideological and political commitments, right? If, if you're going to advocate, for instance, uh, for uh, Tigray's self-determination or autonomy, it's in a very small step. Um, to concede or agree to Eritrean independence. And so they, you know, and, 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 they, and they supported it uh, on the world stage. And in that post-Derg moment when they both come to power, did it look like for a while that they would collectively try to forge a greater Horn of Africa together? Um, well, I mean, I think there, were, there was a lot of discussion after the end of the, end of the Cold War about um, what a new regional dispensation uh, would look like. Um, and there were some halting reforms made uh, to EGAD and some energy around that particular issue. But it falls apart fairly quickly. Um, I mean, of course, you end up having the Eritrea-Ethiopia border war in 1998. I think that was the death knell of that sort of project. But, but even before that, you've got the fairly significant issues with Sudan um, that really made any kind of regional consensus quite difficult. I mean, you'll recall in 1989, um, you've got a, a coalition of the military and Islamists that take over Sudan. And, and it's very, very quickly thereafter, uh, they get involved in a feud with, with Eritrea and then by extension, Ethiopia. So this is by the mid-1990s. You've also got the collapse of the Somali state. So you don't, I think, beyond Eritrea and Ethiopia, you don't really have the raw material necessary, I think, for a genuine project of regional integration. So take us up to the 1998 border war. Where did relations really start to to sour? I I think you've given the history to show that, you know, perhaps relations were never as strong as maybe they might have seemed on the surface. But when did they really start to go south? Well, I I mean, I think the important thing to understand is that is that the separation of of Eritrea and Ethiopia, right, de facto in in 1991, uh, de jure in 1993, introduces a number of points of conflict, right, between the the PFDJ and the TPLF. One is on, I mentioned this before, on economic matters and right, okay, now that we have two independent states, what is the proper economic form or what is the proper form of the economic relationship between the two countries? And I think there were there were different visions around that issue. It, it plays out on, on a number of economic issues, but, um, but I'll just give you one example, um, the question of currency, right? Um, and so in 1997, Eritrea introduces its own currency, uh, the Nakfa, and it, it introduces it under the assumption, the expectation um, that, that this currency will be used um, in trade 
between Eritrea and Ethiopia, right? And the leadership of the EPRDF, the TPLF at the time, is not on board with that. And so essentially, and it basically insists that trade should occur in dollars. And that has the effect of shutting many Eritrean traders out of the Ethiopian economy after 1997. So that's just one example. But there were many other issues, issues over monetary policy, because Eritrea up until 19, 1997 was using the Ethiopian burr. So a number of things going on. Um, and then there were the territorial issues, the, the border issues. Um, and these actually have a long history that go back to the 1970s. And so um, the, the EPLF's predecessor organization, the ELF, the Eritrean Liberation Front, actually had a number of disagreements with the TPLF over, over some of the border areas. Um, the ELF controlled some of those border areas at the time. Um, because of the war and everything that's going on, these things are sort of put aside. Uh, but once Eritrea and Ethiopia become independent, then this question of where the actual boundary between the two countries lies is, is then activated. To make a long story short, there's sort of a back and forth on the border where the Eritrean government accuses uh, the Ethiopian government of encroaching on the border in a few areas and sending its uh, regional police forces to assert control of certain areas. Um, and then there is a clash uh, between um, Eritrean Ethiopian forces in an area called Badim in, in May 1998, in which a number of Eritrean officers are killed. And at that point, the Eritrean president makes a decision um, to move in Eritrean forces into some of what were then disputed territories, a couple of territories beyond those as well. And the Ethiopian government in the following days and ups the ante uh, by effectively sort of demanding withdrawal. And, and if, if there isn't withdrawal from some of those you know, those recently occupied territories, and they would they would go to full scale war. Uh, they would take military measures to reverse this, and that's that's the the, the effective origins of of the Eritrean Ethiopian border war in 1998. I'm, I'm compressing a lot of history here, but just to be clear, I mean, I think a lot of this, a lot of the subtext is about power and authority, right? I mean, the very reason that many these were manageable issues, the economic questions, the border questions. Part of the reason that they couldn't be effectively managed was because they didn't really agree on who the dominant partner was in this particular relationship. Hmm. And remind everyone the scale of the border war between Eritrea and Ethiopia, because sometimes that gets glossed over as well in this history. Yeah, it was it was a horrific conflict. Uh, but a lot of people make the argument, informed people make the argument that this was, uh, in human terms, a costly interstate conflict, conflict between African states um, that the African continent um, has has seen in the post-colonial period. So somewhere around, again, an estimate, somewhere around 100,000 people died in this particular conflict. Uh, this is battlefield casualties. Um, and then, of course, in the border areas, in, in parts of Western Eritrea that were occupied in the late stages of, of the war, there was a lot of civilian harm, damage to infrastructure as well. There were expulsions of, of Eritreans in 1998, and then a lot of a lot of Tigrayans were forced out of, of Eritrea as well. So it was it was a, a grim conflict that I think really damaged uh, people people to relations. Mm. And and how did that conflict end? Well, the conflict was fought in, in three phases. In the early part of the conflict, as a conflict is heating up, um, the Eritrean military is able to occupy most of the disputed territories. And so Ethiopia uh, launches a number of offensives to dislodge Eritrean forces and occupy those territories. Um, so um, there's initial round of fighting, very significant fighting in sort of May, June 1998. There is another round of fighting. And as in, in the intervening periods, by the way, both sides are arming themselves and preparing for a, uh, another round of hostilities. So we get to, I think it was probably around February. I'm, the, the dates are a bit hazy now, but uh, around February 1999, where there's another round of hostilities, some gains on the Ethiopian side in that particular round. And then another fairly decisive round of hostilities in the summer of 2000. And that's where Ethiopian forces are able to make some breakthroughs, uh, particularly in Western Eritrea, to reacquire or they're able to assert control of um, the disputed territories. Um, and then at that point, there's a ceasefire arrangement um, and uh, an Eritrea withdraws back to its borders, but retains control of, of the disputed territories. As a follow-up to that ceasefire arrangement is, is then an agreement on, on sending uh, the boundary issue to arbitration. Um, and that, that has its own unique story, I think, that we could talk about. Yeah, that's a big part, I think, of the Eritrean narrative, especially in all this. What, what prevented Ethiopians from taking it a step further and, and marching on Asmara itself? 
Yeah. So again, this is this is also one of those things in the in the history of Eritrea and Tigray that are that's sort of hotly disputed and debated. Um, so the so I think the, the Eritrean argument would be um, the Ethiopian troops could couldn't advance um, any further. Uh, that they had effectively been halted, and not not only were they trying to seize Asmara, but they were also trying to seize the the Eritrean port of Asab, and they were prevented from doing so. And so, at that point, the argument from from Eritrean elites, the Eritrean state, the government, the PFGJ, is that they had no, we effectively defended the country, and they had no choice but but to sign a ceasefire and 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 agree to a peace process and, and withdraw. The, the perspective I think amongst the grain elites and the TPLF is that in fact, okay, we could have actually marched. Um, on Asmara and toppled um, President Isaias, but but we we chose not to because of pressure from the international community, uh, because we thought that this would actually turn into a guerrilla war that would be uh, unwinnable, that we could never put down a retrain resistance. This might also um, undermine uh, the the sovereignty of Eritrea, and we had committed to it in an earlier period, and that's not that's not somewhere that we wanted to go. Now, where where the truth of this actually lies, it's it's very hard to say. Um, it is the case that on the Ethiopian side, this decision not to continue military operations um, and uh, and agree to arbitration um, was something that that triggered a real rupture um, within the TPLF and and a lot of criticism of Mela. So he almost lost power over this particular. Um, issue, but again, what the what the truth is of of this of this actual of, of sort of the dynamics at the at the end of the war again is is really is really hard to say. It's caught up in in a lot of very polarizing narratives. So much to to get into here. First, a lot of current questions revolve around President Isaias's basic mentality and, and and what he wants in the current conflict. So I think it's interesting looking backwards as well. What what exactly was he seeking in the in the border war? Because it sounds a bit crazy that he thought Eritrea could take on you know, the second largest, most populous country in Africa. So what was he thinking back then? Well, I mean, I, just to this this point on the calculation, I mean, also understand uh, the history that we've outlined, right? And the fact that that the EPLF was in many ways a senior partner in, in the relationship, again, throughout history. And so given that history, I think one can understand um, perhaps why, you know, why the Eritrean leadership made the set of calculations uh, that it did um, about sort of how this particular war might w- might unfold, um, and I think there was an assumption that that um, you know that that the TPLF is doesn't have full control of Ethiopia, won't be able to sort of mobilize its its resources to fight this particular war. But but you know, okay, I mean, stepping back from this, I think from from the from the Eritrean perspective, from Isaias's perspective, and from the perspective of the Tigrayans, this is a war that they kind of fell into accidentally. I don't think I don't think either side actually wanted this war, was looking to instigate it. Um, it it is it was simply an accumulation of problems, tensions, and then there was a trigger, right? These clashes on the border. Um, that that then locked in each side uh, to very uncompromising positions and led to an escalation of war. So I think that's that's part partly what's what's relevant. And I think from from both sides, on the perspective of both sides, um, they were defending what they saw to be sort of their their core interests around the t- territorial integrity of their of their countries, their regions, and um, were also uh, I think trying to lay lay claim to the mantle of regional leadership. You know, I don't think there was a particularly nefarious agenda uh, from leadership of either side. It was it was very much sort of an accidental accidental conflict. You also have to appreciate there were domestic dynamics as well, right? So the border conflict um, certainly gets uh, absorbed into Ethiopian domestic politics generally, but also politics of of the TPLF, and and so you had um, hardliners that were were advocating a particular particularly muscular position, right? Um, on the Eritrean side, I think domestic politics was relevant, but but perhaps in, in a different way, which is I think at this by this point, I think President Isaias is mostly operating without any real kind of institutional constraint. There really there there isn't really a counterbalance to him at this point. There may might have been earlier um, to sort of push back on on some of his foreign you know his his foreign policies, his um, you know some of the strategic calculations he was making, and so that. That's how I think the domestic side of the equation was sort of weighing into some of this as well. So help us explain, and we've sort of touched on this, but haven't dived into it. Help us explain basically how we end up from the humiliation of Eritrea basically at the end of that war um, to it being sort of the present Eritrea as a pariah state, sometimes called the North Korea of Africa, you know, that, that we've known for the past two decades. I think we have to understand what actually happens after the border war, right? So as part of the peace settlement that ends the border war, 
the border dispute, the boundary dispute is sent to arbitration, right? Um, and something called the Eritrean Ethiopian Boundary Commission is set up, right, under the aegis of the international community to, to resolve this particular border question. I think it's in about 2002, the decision uh, on the border comes out. It's, um, it's a mixed bag, but, but, um, some of the key territories that, that trigger, that triggered the actual war are awarded to, to Eritrea, including the flashpoint town of Badimne. And, um, and the Ethiopian response at that point um, is not really positive, right? I mean, they um, they they basically balk on on implementing uh, the deal, um, and and are sort of at that point sort of in violation of some of their their international obligations under the deal. And the guarantors there were guarantors to the agreement, um, or rather, I should say, not guarantors but witnesses to the agreement: um, the United States, the Europeans, the AU, that don't really put the requisite or necessary pressure on Ethiopia to actually implement the agreement. Over time, Ethiopia's position, I think, softens, um, and and they basically say, well. Um, we we agree to the you know we we agree with the boundary decision are ready to implement it but we want a broader consultations talks a normalization of ties maybe some discussions about the details of implementation with the Eritrans side right so they wanted a bit of a quid pro quo um, that really wasn't provided for under um, the actual uh, agreement peace agreement this was actually called the Algiers Accord the Algiers Agreement um, and um, and the Eritrean side sort of refused President Isaias refused and said implement the decision on full in full um, there's nothing really to talk about until until that happens right so withdraw so in, in effect withdraw from these territories that you've occupied consistent uh, with with the with the uh, with the EEBC decision um, and and you know and that's that that's what needs to happen now and so that locks in then a basic dispute between uh, the TPLF and the EPLF uh, for the next you know 17 18 uh, years, you know, and it plays out in a variety of ways. The TPLF decides to pursue a containment policy of Eritrea, right? So where they try and contain their regional influence, uh, isolate it internationally. It's fairly successful. They get support, some support from the United States um, for this particular endeavor in large part because of some of the Eritrean government's involvement in the Somali civil war and support of Somali as Islamists. So in 2009, their UN Security Council sanctions effectively an arm, arms embargo imposed on Eritrea. So Eritrea really slides, I think, into international isolation in this period, while Ethiopia, under the leadership of the EPRDF, uh, TPLF, sort of um, sort of emerges as sort of the dominant player in the region, right? So that's, that's, that's where things... Um, uh, effectively go. On top of that, um, you have a, uh, and this I think was part of Eritrea's uh, uh, isolation in this period, the country really slides into um, a very repressive politics, I would say. So there is the the border war opens up some cleavages within the ruling party where many, many of Isaias' key lieutenants begin to question uh, his leadership. So he cracks down um, an arrest and disappears um, those dissidents, those opponents, cracks down on their networks outside of the ruling party. There is a crackdown on civil society, independent press, uh, religious institutions. Um, there's a broader militarization of Eritrean society um, where um, the country's youth are, are conscripted, uh, in most cases on an indefinite basis, into the country's military and it's in service of the government. Um, so there's a, a pretty profound um, um, political slide. Of course, um, the situation in terms of democratic politics in Ethiopia wasn't wasn't much better in this period either. It wasn't great, but it wasn't it wasn't the kind of deep, uh, I would almost say, totalitarianism that you see Eritrea slide into, right? Um, and so that that is that's essentially what uh, where things go. Um, and again, um, at least as it develops, um, much of the international community. Um, sort of takes the Ethiopian government's side as this dispute sort of uh, evolves and metastasizes. Um, and that, that is, I think, a key part of, of understanding the Eritrean perspective and their narrative on sort of where the region sits, where it should, where it should go, and indeed the, the current conflict um, that's centered on, on northern Ethiopia right now. Yeah, and, and just to mention that Eritreans rarely uh, fail to point out uh, when this narrative comes up that it was they who ended up being so isolated, even though it was Ethiopia that didn't implement the arbitration agreement that was awarded. Yeah, I mean, there, there is, I mean, I, I think, you know, from the perspective of the international community, I mean, there's no doubt that that failing to implement 
um, or failing to press the Ethiopian side to implement this agreement was was a big problem, was was a historic mistake. Now, would would the implementation of of the the border agreement necessarily have have meant um, a thawing of Eritrea Ethiopia ties or some sort of a kumbaya moment between the TPLF and the PFDJ? I, I actually kind of doubt it. Um, but certainly the fact that this border arrangement wasn't wasn't implemented was was part of the problem. So so we've got up to the point where basically uh, President Isaias is effectively contained by Addis Ababa um, and, and the TPLF. So what do you think? Do you think President Isaias was basically plotting for this moment, this moment being the start of the Tigray War since this since this period? What what, what has been his objectives and and Sometimes you see uh, this conflict referred from his view as being sort of existential to take on the TPLF. Do you think that's accurate? Well, I think there are there are a couple of factors that 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 are necessary to consider um, when when um, assessing sort of um, Eritrea or Isaias's involvement in in the Ethiopia conflict, the Tigray conflict. I mean, I think you know, given given the history, um, I think. I think Isaias judges or assesses uh, the TPLF um, and to some extent Tigray more generally, right? Because the TPLF rests upon, upon a broader social base as being a, a threat um, um, to, to his to his power, right? And I think there are concerns, there are fears around uh, subterfuge, uh, maybe may potential cross-border attacks, right? So on, on some level, I think he sees himself as preempting uh, security threats. And, and those security th- threats from his perspective, are probably much worse today than they were before the war, right? Because the war has created a new level of enmity, insecurity, um, grievances on both sides, but particularly the Tigrayan side, right? And so they've at, at, at some times, I think, signaled that if given the opportunity, they would take the fight um, to the Eritrean president. So I think that's, so that I think there is an element of insecurity, a fear. I mean, also remember in Eritrea, we're talking about hyper-authoritarian state, right? And, and, um, and security concerns, fears are a big external and internal and their nexus, their interlinkage is, I think, a big driver of, of the behavior of these kinds of states, right? Um, you know, I think it's also the case that he, he judges, um, sort of getting in his mind here, but the Eritrean leadership sort of judges um, that, that, you know, the, the situation in Ethiopia, the, 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 the role of the TPLF, that the TPLF essentially uh, poses a, a challenge to um, Isaias' regional influence, right, and his ability to project power into Ethiopia and, 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 and across the region more generally, right? So I think there's a, a broader regional ambition. I think the Eritrean leadership, Isaias, sees, sees itself, sees himself as um, kind of a senior figure in the region, that should play a very critical role in managing regional affairs. And he sees the TPLF and its uh, perceived allies around the region as a, as a problem in that particular in that particular regard. And then, you know, uh, I think a third way of thinking about this or trying to understand uh, the, the intervention, although I'm not totally convinced this is really what's going on, is just an issue of vengeance or, or retaliation or revenge. Uh, for the for you know the border war, which you know he 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 blames on the TPLF and Eritrea's subsequent international isolation. Do you think the concern that Eritrean troops might be willing or even seeking to commit mass atrocities within Tigray? Do you think what what do you think of that concern? Is it is it legitimate or is that overblown? No, I mean I think it's it's a concern uh, absolutely, and I mean I I think I think we can let's first say upfront of course um, that. Um, that we've seen atrocities from from all parties to the conflict, right, over over the course of the war, uh, and, and ultimately there needs to be accountability for those. But certainly, if we look at the the coalition uh, of forces, right, so if we look at the the ENDF, we look at some Amhara forces, we look at um, uh, the Eritrean military. I mean, there's plenty of of credible reporting, public reporting, to suggest um, that that. Um, in the initial phase of the conflict, right when they obtained control uh, of, of Tigray, right, um, that they that, that they waged effectively a scorch earth military campaign in the region, um, and and so I think I think the concerns are are justified. I think they're legitimate. Um, I think the, the fact that folks are raising the alarm um, is is quite reasonable, um, particularly as we move into this next phase of conflict. Um, where it appears that, that uh, many parts of Tigray's population centers will be 
uh, occupied or reoccupied by those same forces, right? So, so I think that's that's a con- that's that's a concern, and and the, the same concerns, of course, existed um, um, when the TDF marched in Tamhar and Afar. That those were also concerns as well, similar sorts of concerns. Um, so, yeah, I, I I would agree with with people raising that alarm. What's the best way of thinking about Eritrea? And how an end of the war in Tigray would seemingly have to include Eritrea, even though it appears like President Isaias isn't interested in any, in any negotiated settlement and isn't a party to what's now the African Union talks in South Africa. How do you go about sort of trying to picture how this might end and, and how to fit uh, Eritrea into the picture of, a, of conflict resolution? Yeah, so I mean, um, I, I think there there are two things here. I mean, one, I, I mean, I think it's fair to say that that Eritrea's withdrawal, disengagement from the conflict in Ethiopia and Tigray is really quite fundamental uh, to getting to any kind of sustainable peace, right? Um, and so, you know, I, I think I think the calls for Eritrea's immediate withdrawal, uh, the Eritrean leadership's besides immediate withdrawal, are, are quite reasonable and and justified from a conflict resolution perspective. Um, I think at the same time. Um, it would be appropriate to signal um, uh, or provide some assurances um, or guarantees or some understanding um, of sort of Eritrea's, and I'm not talking about the leadership here, but the country more generally, some of its legitimate security fears or, or interests. Um, and not suggesting here that, that what the president has done in Tigray and the intervention there is legitimate. Uh, that's not what I'm suggesting. But, um, but if there are assurances or guarantees that might be able to be provided against future attack or uh, I think that's that's something that that needs to be put on the table and considered not necessarily as part of formal talks but part as of the sort of diplomatic dance that goes on behind the scenes um, with with the international community and I, and I think there has been some signaling to the Eritrean government that look um, you know we understand that you know you have some security fears and concerns um, whether we regard those as legitimate or illegitimate, sort of, that's not the question. But let's look at how we can try and uh, address them, um, so that so that you know you can be removed or extricated from from the Tigray situation, um, and we can actually get down to a sustainable peace. So, so I think so I think there are, again two things critical here. I think Eritrea's withdrawal, immediate withdrawal, is really quite fundamental, um, and then there needs to be I think a a related conversation about um, how some of its uh, more reasonable security interests, I think, can be can be addressed, right? Um, and and I, there are a variety of tools and mechanisms uh, that might be possible. And 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 I and I should add, I think you are right, Alan. I think part of the challenge, quite here uh, right now, is that at least from what we we can see and have heard, you know, the, the Eritrean government has pretty maximalist uh, ambitions, right? That they're they're looking for the full sort of elimination of the TPLF. Um, and a and to be able to dictate a a a status quo in in Tigray that sort of works for them, right? Um, and uh, and so that's that, I think that is part of the challenge. It, it, it's a, it's all well and good to sort of say, well, let's have a conversation about your legitimate security interests, um, but then you actually need someone on the other side willing to engage on that level, right? Yeah, is is this all basically theoretical and rhetorical right now when we talk about possible? Even saying negotiated settlement with with uh, Eritrea um, is almost hard to do, I think, without qualifying it. Um, so, yeah, it, has this moved anywhere beyond sort of us talking in abstract? Well, um, I, I have very little doubt that in, in the in the in the context of diplomatic discussions between different members of the international community and the Eritrean government, there have been efforts to try and have a conversation about okay, what are your what are some of your legitimate security interests here? How can we help address them so that that we can get you to withdraw from Tigray? Right? It's fairly clear to me that that some of those conversations that that that, that has been the approach of some in the international community. Um, but then the question really has been, you know, is it, is Eritrean government actually willing to engage on that basis? Right. So, in, in answer to your question. I think those approaches have been made, right? I'm fairly certain of that. The question really is, has there been any any sort of response to carry that forward? It's not just a two-player game, this conversation between the international community and the Eritrean government. You know, you're also going to need the Ethiopian government and the, and the TDF to also be in a position where they can make some of those 
assurances real, right? Um, and that's that's going to be <laughs> that's also not going to be easy, right? Because war creates its own momentum. There are deep grievances and insecurity. I think animating the calculations of the TDF as well, in particular, right? So it's it's very tough. Yeah, this is a very tricky picture. Um... Uh, just quickly, you, you mentioned sort of ways of possibly having security guarantees. Is is that like a third party border force that you're discussing or or what would that look like beyond the abstract? Yeah, so I, I have, just to be clear, I have no visibility on, on things that have been proposed or discussed. Thinking in more abstract terms, something like a third party force um, on the border, in border areas that guarantee both the security interests of, of Tigrans and also of Eritreans, I think, might be a good step, right? Would the parties to the conflict, the various parties to the conflict, agree to that? Um, I'm less certain. But th- those are the kinds of mechanisms that might might make sense. You could also imagine, you know, basically demilitarized zones. I mean, some of these things were, uh, you know, now we're repeating history. Some of these things were uh, were uh, deployed in the context of the, the Eritrea-Ethiopia peace settlement back in, in, in 2000. Um, but, but those are the kinds of things that, that might work to sort of reduce the security fears of either side. But, but it requires the parties to the conflict, and particularly the Eritrean government, to sort of step away from some of its maximalist ambitions. And is there any way to actually pressure Asmara that looks like it's ever been successful? You know, my, my view on this really is um, that, that a lot of the conversations actually have to be had with Addis. Right. And, and that's probably where pressure has to be applied. Right. Because um, let's recall um, let's understand. I mean, Eritrea is not deployed into Ethiopian Tigray on its own. Right. It is it is um, with the support, um, with the political cover uh, of the federal government. Right. And so I think if we're actually going to get movement on this issue, the 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 the, the candid conversations and pressure really has to be deployed on the federal government, right? And then that's not suggest the Eritrean government should be, shouldn't be held accountable either, right? But, but I think if you're going to move the needle, it's, it's really with the Ethiopian authorities that these conversations have to be held. Thank you so much for this conversation. I think this was extremely rich and um, our listeners will, will get that out of this. No, absolutely. Happy to do it, Alan. Thanks for listening. You can find out more about Crisis Group or read our reports at crisisgroup.org. Once again, I'm Alan Boswell, and The Horn is produced by Mae Francis and Ida Holly Nambi. We'll have another episode out in two weeks. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinarian-developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.